America America You are so grand and golden Oh, I wish I was deep in America tonight How's it going, America? Katie Wilson here. Welcome back for our third episode of this very first season of... And I'm Caitlin Scholl. We're really psyched you made it this far, and I have to admit, I am very much looking forward to delving into subject matter that's a little bit easier for someone like me to relate to. Uh, what do you mean by someone like you? I mean, you were valedictorian of your high school class, cum laude in college, published author, blah, blah, graduate degree. You're exactly the kind of high achiever that would fit right into this season. Definitely a high achiever, if you feel me. Uh, what are you trying to say exactly? We'll just have to find out in season two. All right, all right, we got it. But hold up a sec. We're not quite done in this world. But if, like Caitlin, you're sick of talking straight politics, you're in luck. We're going to be pulling the wool off of a widespread but highly stigmatized human issue that revealed itself again and again during our foray into this tightly laced world. Mental health is a topic that not many people tend to associate with D.C. and the world of politics. I certainly didn't. I didn't expect to go to D.C. and talk to folks face-to-face and have this topic come up again and again and again and again. I mean, it definitely surprised me. Yeah, from the outside, I think there's often this sense that people living in D.C. and working in politics, well, have their shit together. You know, most are super smart, competitive, quick-witted, and very well-informed. It's kind of a tribe of well-dressed, polished, and rather guarded type A overachievers. A city full of class presidents, I think someone told us. D.C. does not appear to be a town where you can share your weaknesses or your vulnerabilities and, I don't know, come out with a job. Luckily, though, I met some pretty cool insiders during my campaign, some of whom even ended up working for me. And when we began to ask questions about their lives outside of politics, something kind of cool happened. People started to open up about their most human sides, including struggles with mental health and addiction. We started to connect the dots between the very real and, in some ways, completely generic experience of simply being alive in this country. And the very particular experience of being a real person, vulnerabilities and all, inside a political machine that doesn't, well often support or even acknowledge those vulnerabilities. Because if you recall from last week, politics is all about persona, which is basically about getting your messaging straight. And even if you step away from the dark side towards the feel-good realm of policy, it's still about messaging. And that's a reality that's hard to escape in D.C. When Katie was campaigning, she even had a guy for that. Uh, I am a Democratic political consultant who specializes in communications and crisis. And uh, I help progressives build power. I am the guy who helps a bunch of people who don't necessarily talk like you and I talk, um, try to get what they want to say out in as few words as possible. (laughs) I try to, like, help people connect more with real folks and get them to understand that, 
you know, winning the argument isn't always about looking like the smartest person in the room. That's Brad Bauman, and he did work on my campaign. He helped us keep our messaging tight and sort of made sure I didn't lose my shit on national TV. Which is exactly why this week we are focusing on just that, keeping our shit together. No angles, no agendas. We just wanted to hear what people wanted to say. And luckily, Brad had a lot to share. And bonus, we got to meet face-to-face with what most internet meme junkies would deem to be the very poster child for mental health issues. The elusive Florida man. I mean, look, Miami's Miami, and everyone will tell you that everyone from Miami is crazy, and I'm not going to deny that. We are all insane. It's it's the ballad of the Florida man, you know? Like, like Florida man is weird. Can you elaborate on that? Well, you know the story. Like, everyone sees the Florida man stories, like, you know, what comes out in public about, like, you know, Florida man found throwing alligator through window or, (laughs) you know, weird stories like that. I mean, there is something in the water down there. Now we have a hard-to-believe-but-true story out of Florida. A man in Polk County called 911 to report a drunk driver himself. But detectives say after Edward consumed dozens of roaches and worms, he got sick. Broke into an airport on Davis Islands, tried to steal two airplanes. Dressed as a bull in a onesie costume. Police say this Florida man warned them that his turtle army would destroy them. Officers in Brevard County say they received seven calls about a man disturbing the peace. What's the DC man story? <laughs> Is there one? I mean, I nap a lot now. The DC trope that I think that most people have in their minds is of kind of official DC, you know, starched suits and nerdy kids running around playing dress up and, (laughs) you know, politicians and, you know, dysfunction. DC is a much different place than that. You know, there's official Washington. There's like the Washington of the Hill offices. There's government man. Yeah, there's government man. But then there's also the district, Uh which is where, like, we all live, like, real people. So our friend Brad, a recovering Florida man, works in D.C. helping government man tell his story. And there's a huge premium put on this kind of work because, as you know, government man doesn't always seem that in touch with the rest of us. Sometimes you just need to emote a little and maybe, you know, kind of approach people from where they are and maybe like show people that you really do get that they're hurting or get that they're scared or maybe get that they're frustrated and angry because frankly they spent their entire lives getting sold a bill of goods and being told hey all you got to do is work hard and play by the rules and everything's going to be handed to you and that's just not what happens. So why do so many people in DC and in this world need people like you to help them? I think Something probably happens along the way when most folks are rushing through middle and high school in order to kind of define what success means for them. Brad said part of defining success often includes running away from our past, our circumstances, and even the tribes we came from. In the model of remaking yourself, and I think it's certainly true up here, people remake themselves into something that is kind of aloof and emotionally reserved and, you know, attempts to kind of wall off that piece of them that they don't want to remember because it brings them pain. Wow. So it's like you're 
spending so much time kind of masking your vulnerabilities in order to achieve success, but then in order to actually gain success, you need to show some more of your vulnerabilities. 100%. All right. So we were curious why Brad was so good at his job. Did he have experience running from his past? Is that why he could relate so well to both government man and Florida man? So my dad, rest his soul, was a very complicated man. And he had uh, undiagnosed uh, mental illness. And growing up in my household was not too dissimilar from what I think America is experiencing with Trump. Um, How? Well, there was no reasoning with my father. There was always a shifting truth. Um, You were never right. You were always wrong. So did that lead to a lot of self-questioning? Yeah. In fact, it created a dynamic within myself where uh, I was, and sometimes still am, never really sure whether or not you know, my take on reality is reality or not, it really made for a confusing and troubling and scary existence. When you grow up and truth doesn't exist and truth is always kind of left to the whims of your father and what was true 20 minutes ago wasn't true 20 minutes later and he would argue you to death and then as a last resort uh, would verbally abuse you, call you names and bully you into uh, compliance. I mean, I would say is it was, you know, not just formative for the man that I have become, but sort of the, I I mean, in some ways I feel like that's kind of, for better or for worse, why I'm pretty good at fighting what we're fighting right now, because I, I think I'm used to it. So despite and possibly even because of his tormented home life, including his privilege and the wild ride of growing up in Miami, Brad found himself looking for something we all have to reckon with, meaning. So in 2000, Brad did what many other young people searching for a higher purpose do. He joined a presidential campaign. For somebody like me who like, kind of left a party scene in Miami and who wanted to do some good, All of a sudden, I found myself on the front lines of a major presidential campaign and an insurgent presidential campaign at that, that was like literally challenging, you know, Al Gore's quote unquote time. It was his time to run for president. So you're an underdog. It was so wild. And and like- How um, so? Like what what was, what would you guys do? Oh, it was a party scene too. Like- Was everyone fucking everyone? Was it like- Yeah, there was a lot of that. It was, you know, I think that people- around the country would be, don't realize (laughs) that in a lot of ways, campaign culture, and this too, I think is changing right now for the first time. Campaigns were a place of arrested development for a bunch of political kids, political dorks. There was just a lot of partying and 
there continued to be a lot of partying in that world. I think that that world is becoming a little bit less party because of the Me Too movement and because people are starting to understand that um, there is so much predatory behavior that kind of goes along with it. Do you think a certain kind of person is attracted to that word? 100%. That like cyclical, kind of short-lived, clear yeah. goal, yeah. then transition kind of job? You've got a lot of like hard-driving people, a lot of adrenaline junkies, a lot of incredibly smart people who are incredibly passionate and drawn to the work because they want to make a difference. You've got your partiers, and then you've got people who get lost in it. You've got a lot of people who just end up journeymen, who just kind of like roam the country looking for campaign to campaign and as an escape as an escape that's right almost like Kane from Kung Fu do you know nothing about him Grasshopper your father I remember a troubled quiet man he was an American So because I just ran a political campaign and had to hire a bunch of 20-something staffers Brad's description of this lifestyle was not surprising. However, prior to my own experience, I never would have guessed that politics was so, I don't know, rock and roll. Yeah, rock and roll is the last thing I have associated with political campaigns. But what about life in D.C., campaigning aside? Is the party or drinking culture still a thing, you know, throughout the broader political tribe? I think that, you know... You, on one side, have a bunch of people who like to get loaded. On the other side, you have a bunch of people who are so uptight that they can't really uh, deal with what they need to do with here unless they are um, drunk or getting drunk or have a glass of wine in their hand. And so you find yourself in in a place that promotes it as a way to get to comity, as a way to get to uh, shared understanding. It becomes a way for people to unwind hard. (laughs) And... Unwind the DC way. (laughs) By taking shots to the head. Life became progressively worse for Brad over the years. Despite being immersed in meaningful work, And finding himself on an upward trajectory professionally, Brad's substance abuse slowly began to take over his life. But at the time, he was fighting for the things he believed in. This was the period where uh, Republicans started to use government shutdowns to put real pressure on Democrats to cut social programs and to try and move the agenda towards making unalterable cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. And the Progressive Caucus was the line in the sand. Okay, so you are literally fighting to save people's lives and keep elderly people in our country from going broke because of their medical bills and or meanwhile, not having a place to live at 85. And meanwhile, you know, five or six nights a week, I was drinking myself into a stupor and then suffering from panic attacks and DTs over the course of the day and forcing myself to kind of not just endure those, but take Xanax in order to just calm myself down to the point where I could function outside of my own apartment. Was there a moment of reckoning that you saw clearly what you had to do to change? No, yeah, it was uh, March 28th. 2014. It was day after my mom's birthday. 
And that night, I had gone out with a couple of friends, and we had this epic night. I mean, it was, you know, we were out until 7 in the morning, and it was ridiculous. And I was supposed to take my mom. It was her 60th birthday, and I was going to take her for a high tea at the Willard. And uh, we get to the hotel, and I felt DTs coming on. And my heart rate started escalating, and my face turned white, and I was sweating profusely, and I couldn't talk, and I couldn't move. And, and you're sitting across from your mom at a like, high tea table. Yeah. And... And her pearls. Yeah. Exactly. And the music is loud, and I am, like, it's ringing in my ears. And I started thinking to myself, you know, I might be having a heart attack. And so I finally mustered up the energy to pick myself up off the chair, and I looked at my mom, and I go, hey, I need to run to the bathroom really quick. And I ran to the bathroom, and I puked. And then I kind of felt my pulse racing, and it had to have been, you know, north of 120. It was, I was, I was feeling like at any moment my heart was going to explode. And I walked back, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I was white as a ghost. And I came back to my mom, and I was able to kind of say to her, hey, I am really, really in a bad spot. I need to go home and take my medicine. And my medicine, of course, meant, Val meant Xanax. Um, and she looked at me and she was okay. And so we uh, paid, I paid the bill and um, we took a cab back to my place. I took a Xanax, my mom sat with me and I just kind of curled up on the couch next to her. And I started just thinking to myself, and I looked up at her, and, and I could see the pain in her face. And it was kind of like the first time I had really seen the pain in someone else's face, looking at me and watching me suffer. And I started just thinking about, like, what, what does this all look like for Brad four years from now? Like, where is Brad Bauman in four years? And I couldn't see it. I couldn't visualize it. And I took that to mean that I probably was slowly killing myself and that I couldn't see it because it didn't exist. And so I decided that night that I was never going to take another drink again. And I never did. Brad did stop drinking. In fact, he's been sober for about five years and still works in politics. He's young and successful and really good at his job. I can attest to that. But he still had to contend with all the shit he'd buried underneath his success and his excess. But he wasn't afraid to talk about it. In fact, he was even open about his struggles on social media, where what you say can often come back to bite you. So it made me wonder if this hurt his career in the cutthroat world of politics. Getting back to a place where I was experiencing emotion and that emotion wouldn't overwhelm my whole life um, 
or that I felt the need to run away from those emotions. It was a learning process. Uh, it was a worthwhile learning process, too. So when she took out the substance, what was left under the surface to deal with? Um, a lot. A lot. And I think, you know, at this point, my dad had already passed away. And uh, there were a lot of unresolved issues. There still are a lot of unresolved issues between me and him. Um, there was a lot of anger and pain and frustration and unrequited love and acceptance. Uh, and coming to terms with all of that, meaning understanding that those feelings persist in me to this day and accepting them, but also not allowing them to kind of like define me or to uh, define my decision making, you know, it was about being very open and vocal about my struggles with my depression on Facebook with friends. And it became very, very clear that after I started doing it, and I mean because of the hundreds of messages that I was receiving from others in politics, that there was this whole hidden story of depression and mental illness that we're all grappling with and that the more open I'm going to be about it, the more I'm actually going to maybe help others to be open about it. And if we all have this conversation and confront it together, then you know what, maybe, just maybe, we'll find a little bit of peace together. Talking to Brad was such a refreshing experience. When I joined you, Katie, in D.C. this spring to talk to everybody, I have to admit I was a bit nervous that I would hate the whole thing and wouldn't relate to anybody. Uh, well, that was actually really obvious, but you didn't ever tell me that. I guess I didn't want you to think I wasn't enthused about the project because I am. Um, but yeah, D.C. is just totally not my vibe at all. I guess you could say I've always been more attracted to worlds or subcultures that kind of break the mold. Um, versus make the mold. I, I don't know. I saw the government as this sort of staid, serious monolith. And I assume that the people who were drawn there were just like that, staid, serious, kind of mainstream, culturally speaking, you know, like proper and rule followers, basically. Somebody that would read from a script. And what about now? Um, as cheesy as this sounds... I think that what this illuminated for me was that, you know, no matter how things appear from the outside or how sort of different or alien another world can seem, when you take the time to look more closely at actual people, you'll find... Actual people. So that's a wrap, folks. We hope you'll join us next week for episode four of The Multiverse.
where we'll sink deep into the quicksand of partisan politicking. There was a bill that we had that was, it was again, sponsored by a Democrat. And House leadership, not publicly, but privately, said, we're killing all your bills. You're not going to get anything this session. Because I was running for re-election and I was, you know, in the other party. And discover why focusing on policies instead of party lines might save us all from going under. And hear from Katie what it was like on stage and in front of the cameras. Until then, try not to die from curiosity, America. This land is This episode of The Multiverse was written by Katie Wilson and myself, with editing and sound design by Ian Carlson, with mixing and mastering by Chris Burns. Theme music is America by artist Bill Callahan. This Land is Your Land rendition by me. 
playlist for this podcast can be found at www.the-multiverse.com, where you can also find more information about us, collaborating artists, and new episodes of this podcast. And again, thanks for listening. This land was made I think that's a quick old wrap. I think that's a saran wrap. <laughs>